Today is, our, is actually our last day in our New Testament overview. We have been at this probably, oh, probably about nine months with a few breaks here and there. Certainly for Christmas, we dealt with some other topics and issues, but we spent quite a long time looking at book by book, the New Testament, looking at the overview, trying to sketch uh, the sort of overarching point of each of those letters with a goal that you can then go back and read the letters and rather than taking them verse by verse or passage by passage and sort of getting lost in those little bits, um, which happens, you know, if you have a daily devotional, usually it's a verse or a little passage and you look at that, but we don't often take a letter as a whole. Um, most people don't sit down and read the entire book of Romans, which we're going to look out today in one sitting. Uh, but those are the way that these letters were intended to be read. They were intended to be sat down and read through uh, in, a, in a community such as this, small groups of people, which were, which were churches, home churches, house churches, met in uh, houses or uh, places of business, shops. Um, small groups like this would get these letters, and they would stand up and they would read them, and they would work through them and figure out what in the world does this mean for us to live in light of what Paul has said or John has said or the gospel writers have said. Um, and we don't often do that. So this has been a long-term process of looking at these letters and talking about those grand themes of each of those letters so that when you go back and you get into the weeds, you can keep them in their proper uh, perspective or frame of reference within the letter as a whole. And so today we come to the last of those, which is Romans, uh, which is uh, a daunting task. We could spend probably the rest of our lives picking through uh, this, this one letter of Paul. Um, and, and in fact, there are, there are scholars who do nothing but that. Uh, there are scholars who do study Romans and nothing but Romans. Um, they spend entire lives and careers picking this one apart. So there is no, no possible way that in one Sunday we are going to touch on every theological point or implication or teaching that Paul puts out in this letter. So if in the course of our conversation today, uh, something that you hold dear and you've learned from Romans doesn't get mentioned, please know that I know that. There's just no way that we can handle it all. Uh, I'm going to try and stick to my notes today because there are so many tangents we can go down. So I may be referencing my notes more than usual. Uh, otherwise, we'll be here all day. Um, but it is... For, for a lot of people considered sort of Paul's grand theological treatise. This is the last letter, we think, one of the last, um, depending on when you date those pastoral epistles. There's some debate there, but this is at the end of his, uh, his apostleship career. He doesn't know that, of course. Paul is writing to the church at Rome. That's a church that he did not found. We do not have the names of those who came and planted the churches in Rome like we do in the churches that we have looked at during the course of this uh, survey. Um, Colossae, the church at Colossae, as we mentioned that week, that was a church that Paul did not found. But the other ones that he writes to are, are his churches, places that he went, he spent time, and he built a community. Uh, but Rome, Rome in the South, I grew up in Atlanta, and if, if you have ever spent any time in the South, or you know anything about it, uh, sort of all roads lead through Atlanta. So if you're in the South, at some point in your life, you're going to make your way to Atlanta for one reason or another. In Ohio, where we live particularly, that's, that's kind of serves as Columbus. You want to do something special or you want to go out to a really nice meal, you head to Columbus. You want to travel somewhere. If it's not the East Coast, you're probably going to go through Columbus. And Rome was like that, particularly given that it was the capital of the empire. And so for many reasons, people would travel to Rome. And so as the early Christians would travel to Rome for business or pleasure or to see the sites that were in Rome or to experience the, you know, the, the culture of the, the mother city, so to speak, uh, they would carry with them their gospel. And uh, they, you know, if they set up shop or whatever, a business for whatever reason there, they would go through their lives and begin preaching the gospel. And it was through this uh, travel and transient nature of the culture that the gospel made its way into Rome. And so by the time Paul sits down to pen a letter to Rome, there is an established church. And keep in mind, it's not a grand big church like it would be 300 years later. It is small groups just like this meeting throughout the, the city they were all a network of house churches, um, but they had sort of grown up uh, in that way. Um, before we jump too far into it, I do want to sketch a little bit of an outline of the entire book. Uh, and this is a high-level overview of the book itself. And so if you've got a Bible and you want to make some marks or you want to uh, make some notes or whatever to kind of help you guide your discussion or your reading, um, these are kind of the traditional breaks in the text where we would say, okay, well, this is one sort of main thrust. This is the next. And uh, 1, 1 through 15 is typically the greeting and thanksgiving. And so this is Paul opening his letter. We're actually going to spend a lot of our time there today. Um, 
it oftentimes gets skipped because what comes right after that in 16 or 17 is been coined God's power through the gospel. This is the, the passage that Luther latched onto. We talked last week with the Reformation. Luther was upset with the, the Roman Catholic Church and the um, abuses that were going on, and it was in teaching Romans and studying Romans in the seminary where he taught that he was meditating on 16, 1, 16, and 17 and came to the conclusion or the realization that we were all saved by faith, not by works. And it was that moment of, of clarity that launches the Reformation. So the movement to return the church back to the gospel, the true gospel, which, as we saw last week, is Paul's purpose in his pastoral epistles. His instruction to his disciples is keep it pure. That's what Luther is trying to do. And he does that by reflecting on 16 and 17. Um, and then from that point on, we looked months ago, when we looked at Romans a little bit, we talked about this passage that comes in 118. And this is the moment where Paul is writing about um, the pagan culture and the way in which they had turned their back on God. God had given them over to their lust and his wrath upon, come upon them. And there's this section then from 118 all the way through 4, in which it's deemed as on the screen, God's righteousness in a cosmos or a world under the power of sin. So Paul's describing for his readers the reality of the world as it existed prior to Jesus that was encapsulated and enslaved by sin and death. Right? And as the pagans continue without Jesus, or anyone for that matter, continue without Jesus, enslaved to sin and death. And then beginning in 5, going on through 8, really all the way through the end of 11, is a discussion of how God has triumphed over that situation. So God has triumphed over the power of sin and death. He has set us free. He has led the, the pagans in particular out of their way of life um, to join the family with Israel. And then that raises a tricky, thorny question of what you do with Israel. And so those chapters of 9 through 11 are Paul dealing with that theological question of what in the world happens to Israel. So if Jesus is now the way, what happens to those who don't believe in Jesus but still adhere to the covenant which God put in place prior? Is God no longer faithful to that covenant? It's a big question which Paul provides an answer in which 2,000 years later we're still debating what exactly that answer is. It's not one we're going to get into today, but it is worth reading and pondering the way in which God remains faithful to his covenant. Um, and then in 12, 12 through 15 is... In light of all that, how do we act in the world? How, does, how are God's people to act? How are we to interact with the people that we meet in the marketplace or the shops or the, in our case, the coffee shop or the grocery store or, or, the, or the job you know, where you go to work? How, how do you live? Um, so he makes it practical. And then in the end is where he gives his mission plans. And this is how we know that he's writing to Rome in order to gain support because he's going to go to Rome and then he's going to move on to Spain. And we think that it's likely that the church in Rome um, has already heard about Paul. If you think through the letters that we've studied so far, often Paul is defending himself against others who would come and speak against him, whether that's uh, other teachers with a different gospel or Jewish Christians who want to sort of debase him or lower his status so that they can speak their, their message, which is that Gentiles ought to become Jewish and, and take on the, the, the role and the, the rules of Torah. Um, that presumably appears to have already taken place in Rome, so that Paul, who is planning to go on to Spain, which is further west, will come through Rome. He needs to spend some time there, gather support for his mission, his ministry, financial and otherwise, spend some time with the church there, and then go on to Rome. And so he's writing this letter in somewhat as a defense of his position, as an explication or explanation of his position, so that they can, uh, for lack of a better term, hear it straight from the horse's mouth, what it is that he's teaching, because there is in a high likelihood a message that is been tainted or painted him in a bad light from these other missionaries uh, that have kind of gone off the rails. So Romans is in one way a defense, but it is also certainly instruction. And so it is, a, it is essentially Paul writing for both of those reasons to say, here is what I believe. Here is what the gospel is. Here is the message that I carry, that I received, as we know, he tells us in Galatians, I received directly from Jesus, along with the apostles, this is it. And so when we look back on last week in those pastoral epistles, when he's saying to Timothy and Titus to keep the doctrine and the message and the gospel pure, here is in Romans, effectively, the pure gospel as Paul understands it, as was given to him. 
And so that's why we would consider this sort of Paul's grand theological statement or his work. And for many people, uh, this is the, the book you'd take with you on a desert island. If there's one book out of the Bible that you're going to take to the Bible, a lot of people would point to Romans and say, I, I want that one. Um, which is a little ironic, as hopefully that's going to become up here, why you would take it to a desert island, because ultimately what God is doing is creating a community of people. And that ultimately is Paul's purpose here, and which is what we're going to get to. Luther, as I said, latches on to 16 and 17. I'm going to read that real quick for us. In 1, 16 and 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. As I said, it was in meditating on those two verses and the rest of Romans, but particularly those, that Luther came to the understanding and the realization that it was not a combination of God's grace and our works, which was, which was the teaching of the Catholic Church at that time. If you think or you know anything about uh, Catholic confession and then penance, it is this process by which you come in, you confess your sins, to a priest, the priest then gives you a penance, which you have to go out and do in order to receive the forgiveness. And so you did something in order to receive the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And Luther, in reading this, particularly these two verses, says, no, 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 that's not it at all. It has nothing to do with what you do. All right. And so this is where we, as particularly as Protestants, um, get our by faith alone. Solo fide is the Latin doctrine, by faith, only faith. It is only faith, it is by faith alone that we are saved. Um, and as Protestant Christians, as those who are not Catholic, who have inherited that Reformation tradition, often for us, Romans starts here. And so we forget that there are 15 verses in front of this that serve as an introduction. And we, we jump off in 16 and 17. It's all, almost as if we sit down and read the letter and we, we, we blow through the first 15 verses as if Paul's saying, hey guys, Here's what I want to tell you. And we just sort of neglect what Paul says as the setup. And so we're going to spend some time there today because though justification plays a crucial and fundamental role, justification and, and what he says about that in those middle chapters is the fulcrum on which this book moves and sways and operates. But justification is not the point of the book. All right? So justification is the premise that Paul puts out in order to make his conclusion, which is the same conclusion he's been making all along. What is, if, if I asked you now, having read through all of Paul's books, what are Paul's big themes? What are they? You can just shout them out. Grace, of course, grace. Blank stairs. Faith, love. Sorry? Mercy. Sorry? Be the church. And one of the things that he harps on over and over and over is the church in its diversity and unity. All right? So the whole letter of Galatians is about this rift between Jewish and Gentile Christians and the split that is, is appearing. And he needs to gather those things. In Ephesians, remember, he talks about the purpose, the mystery of Jesus, what Jesus is doing. Right? Not the mechanics of what happens on the cross, but Jesus' purpose is to gather all things to himself. And so one of the, and I've said this before, one of the chief witnesses of the church to the world is its unity amidst its diversity. It's the fact that people who ought not live together, work together, certainly ought not worship together or eat together, do. And so despite what the world would say to shove us all apart and was saying at that time to keep Jews and Gentiles apart, God transcends those, those, those divides, those, those caverns that are between people and pulls them all together. And so that it is the kingship of God, of Jesus, over the world that provides the unity and the ground upon which all of us come into the, the church, into the family of God, that allows for that unity amidst diversity. Does that make sense? And so what Paul is saying in this letter is it is because justification is by grace alone that we are all on the same playing field. All right, I'm going to the, tip my hat there, right? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> right? That's what Paul is all about here. Justification plays an important role, but it is not the end goal for Paul in Romans. The end goal for Paul in Romans is, is us realizing that because it's through no work of our own, it's only through the grace and mercy and righteousness of Jesus himself that I'm no better than you and you're no better than me. We are no better than anyone else. We're all in the same playing field. Whether you're black or you're white, you're male, you're female, you're slave, you're free, whatever, 
You're all the same. And so we get God is, and God is king about all. That's his point. Okay. That's his overarching point. We're going to see that as we uh, enter into uh, this, this introduction, which we're going to read today. Um, And I, I will say before we get there, the conclusion that Paul draws and that we can draw from what he says is that ethnic diversity is the manifestation, ethnic diversity in the church, diversity of all types in the church, but particularly ethnic, given what he's dealing with between Jews and Gentiles, is a manifestation of God's sovereignty over the world, right? That's another way of saying that it is our diversity and our unity that is a witness to the power of Jesus Christ, right? The fact that we all sit in the same room and pray to the same God and love each other and get along, despite what the world would tell us should divide us, is evidence that Jesus is real, that God is real, that there's power in the message of the gospel, okay? So let's get into this uh, little introduction here. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is no... um, He's not shy about using run-on sentences. (laughs) It's all one big massive sentence, except for the last little bit. But what what we do in our haste to get to that 16th verse where justification plays the the primary role, is we skip over this. And and like I said earlier, it's almost as if, you know, we just kind of read this and think, Paul's saying, hey, y'all, I'm going to write you a letter. And then he jumps into it in 16. And that's not at all what he's doing here. There is built into this introduction, as we're going to see here in a minute, a number of clues and keys as to what Paul wants to say, okay? And I actually don't always follow this pattern, but they say good speakers will tell you what they're going to tell you, and then they tell you, and then they tell you what you told you, right? And at the beginning here, and then again at the end in chapter 15, when he's sort of wrapping up, um, Paul is admonishing his church, or this church, which isn't his, um, but of course he's a part of as, as an apostle, right? We're all together is encouraging them to live in that unity under the kingship of God and, or of, of Jesus in particular. And we see this here, but maybe we don't see this here because we don't pay attention or we just never been shown. So he starts off by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That's all true. I want you, I want you to go to, go to the next part. My, I think it's not working. All right. Leave servant behind. Who's he a servant of? There's more to that. There's more to that, right? Jesus Christ. Thank you, Alec. Jesus Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ is the Greek word that, that uh, translates and brings which? Messiah. And what is Messiah? No, not Savior. I mean, he is. Theologically, that's, you're right. Messiah, of course, is Savior. But in, in Hebrew, yeah. The promised one. And, and what was the promised one to be? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The king. The king. Messiah is king. Christ, as a translation of Messiah, is king. Anytime you see Jesus Christ, you can think in your head, King Jesus. That's what it means. Right? And so very, very, right from the outset, Paul uses terms, rightly so. Jesus, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. Right? We often think it's his last name or his middle name. It's not Jesus Christ like it's Sam Osborne or Alec Mack or you know, any, any of these other names we have. It's a title, King Jesus. So he's a servant of King Jesus. So it's about, what he's getting ready to tell you is all about kingdom. And he goes on from there to make the point very clear. Right? which he promised beforehand through his prophets in Holy Scriptures. What was the promise? It's not a trick question. What did he promise? A king. Right? He promised, he made promises to Abraham, and then through David, he promises David a descendant who will be his king, which gets to the next point when he says, 
which is descended, uh, descended from David according to the flesh. That's a kingly statement. If you're descended from Dave, David, you are the heir to the throne. It's all about kingdom. It's all about Jesus becoming king. And this goes back to what is now a year ago. I've been here a year. Happy anniversary. <laughs> you guys have put up with me for a year. Um, that the gospel is not salvation. All right? Now, salvation is part of the gospel, certainly. The gospel, rightly understood, gospel, the Greek word euangelion, the evangel, which we get from, we get our word evangelism. The gospel in this time and place is the announcement of a king. When the, the new emperor came to the throne, a gospel went out, was read in all the land, that announced the new reign of the, the new emperor. And so just the fact that we call it a gospel, just the fact that Jesus or Paul says that he's set apart for the gospel, it means he's set apart for proclaiming the kingship of Jesus. Jesus has become king, which means he has now ascended to the throne. He is the ruler of all, which means, therefore, Rome is not the ruler, but also sin and death is no longer the ruler of the world. Okay? So, it's true to say that the gospel is about salvation inasmuch as Jesus becoming a king necessarily means that we are saved. When Jesus redeems the world, when he comes back to his throne, which he was always meant to be on from the very beginning, and go back to the Genesis creation, God creates a world which is a temple in which he puts his image, us, to worship, to praise, and to live with him, that he is to be God over all. And we said, no thanks. So we broke it. We, in a sense, dethroned him in our hearts, in our lives, and sin and death crept in as a result. For Jesus to come back, for God to come back through Jesus and reestablish himself on the throne as the king necessarily means that sin and death are kicked to the curb. So the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is first and foremost at its highest level, most important level, the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the king. That through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, he has conquered death and sin and our misdeeds and our baser natures and become Lord over all. And so salvation is a big part of that, of course, and thank God it is. But the gospel is Jesus as king. We have lost that, as we talked about almost a year ago now. We just want to go around saying the gospel is Jesus loves you, he saves you, right? Jesus is my best friend. There's a, there's a song out there. It's, it's, no, it's not. It's terrible. <laughs> Don't try to redeem that song, Mike. It's terrible. Someday we're going to put it up on the screen and let everybody enjoy it if you think it's good. I'll ask Mike or Alec to, to play it. Um, <laughs> no, it is ridiculous. Anyway, the gospel is not that Jesus is lottie dotty friends with you, right? Now, Jesus is your friend. He's your brother. He loves you. He's also your king. He is everyone's king. He is the king of the world, and that is the gospel, and that is what Paul is setting up here. And we, unfortunately, because we've inherited this Lutheran, uh, and I mean that in the broad sense, the, the theology of Luther and the Reformation inherited this focus of justification that's in the, in the middle of Romans, we just blow past this and we say Romans is all about justification. And I'm going to take it to the, the desert island because it reminds me of the way in which God has made me his son or his daughter again, has put him in a right relationship with him. That's true. Paul cares very much about that. He spends a lot of time talking about that. But all of that is in order that he can be king in order that we all are all one family, in order that we become the members of the kingdom, the people of God. That's the point of Romans. That's the point of Paul. That's the point of the gospel. Okay? The kingdom. Big term. It's, a, it's, a, it's been a buzzword in the Christian world, especially evangelical theology, for a number of years now. Um, and everyone is, is, you've heard me say even, that we, are, we should be about building the kingdom here and now. We should. But we must also realize that that is a future reality. And so there is a tension that we live in, both in the sense that we are saved but still find ourselves sinning. We are saved but still not this completely new creation that we will once be, right? The kingdom itself is in part a reality, but look around the world. It is not a full reality. And so we look forward to the day when Jesus will return and establish his earthly reign in full. And this is our, 
what the big term, you know, $10 seminary term, this is our eschatological future, eschatology. The eschaton is the end time, the coming age when all of that happens. And so we are people who look forward to that day and try in every way possible to manifest that here and now, to transform this world into as much a likeness of that as possible, understanding that we are God's hands and feet that are, are, are encouraged and called to be the ones who engage with God in the process of bringing that into reality, okay? But what all that means, that's not anything new, hopefully. We've talked about that before. What all that means, therefore, is that if the kingdom is not now and it is not there, it will be then, there is no place where you can point and say definitively that that is the kingdom. And, and more pointedly, there is no nation or government to which you can point and put your finger on and say, this is God's kingdom. That hurts as Americans, a little bit. We, we are proud of our country, right? Um, but we need to recognize that America is not the kingdom. That we are part of the kingdom, but not by virtue of the fact that we are Americans, by virtue of the fact that we are God's people, that we are Christians, right? So as Christians then, we don't expect that our government is going to be the kingdom of God. That's one, not possible, and two, we're just setting ourselves up for disappointment and failure. Now, does that mean that we just go into our closet and shut the door and we don't care about it and we just say the heck with it all, I'm just going to go worship my Jesus over here? Well, there have been people through the time that have taken that tact. Uh, I would suggest to you that that's not at all what we should be doing, but rather understanding that in our, in our case, America is not the kingdom, that we are subjects of the kingdom, that we look forward to the day in which the kingdom will be brought into its fullest, fullness. We look to the picture that we were given and we look at our world and we say, this is what the kingdom will be like, and this is where we're failing. And because we are failing, we are liable to God's judgment. And we can either right this wrong, or we can pay for it. And we know, and we trust, and we hope that God will set it right someday. But it's our job now, here and now, to identify, to see the ways in which our world falls short of the coming kingdom, and to speak about that. So we speak the gospel. We speak the kingdom. We speak that reality into our present day. Does that make sense? Knowing that it will never be fully realized, but with God's help, we're going to make it as close as we can until the day that Jesus comes back. And in doing that, we proclaim the gospel. We do that because God is our king, and he says, this is the way things ought to be. This is the way they will be someday, and this is what we ought to work for now, because he's king not just because he saved us, because he's our king. And he has a right to demand that of us. Here we're going to pull back our talk happened before Christmas at the end of the year last year about righteousness and the, the biblical deeper understanding of righteousness, not as conforming to some list of right behavior, but rather being righteous is enacting and behaving in ways that are consistent with our obligation in the midst of a relationship, particularly in our relationship to God and to each other. And to be righteous is to act well, to meet those obligations. And so that necessarily, particularly in, in the story of Israel, meant conforming to a covenant. All right? But we are not righteous because we tripped over something and we messed up and now we're dirty. We're unrighteous because we consistently, as human beings, fail to live into our obligation to our Lord, God, and Creator. Okay? Remember that righteousness, justification, and justice are all the same word in Greek. All right? They're all the same word. They mean the same thing. And so to be righteous is to act rightly. And that's why how we look at Jesus and say that he's righteous because he is the perfect example of how to behave, live, act, think, speak, to be in the world in relationship with Jesus. He is perfectly righteous. And it is his righteousness that saves us. Justification then is the process by which we are brought back into relationship with Jesus. It is not simply God saying, oh, I look at you and I see my son, although it is that. It's not just him just wiping your slate. It is him actually bringing you back into relationships so that you can communicate with him and fellow Christians in the way that we ought to. That is wiping away the sin, death, and decay that has derailed us and making us right once again. And then justice, to the extent that we are called to be people of justice, is our call to act in a way that puts things right. To look at the world, to look at that coming kingdom and say, here are ways in which the world is broken. 
And it is our job as righteous people to act justly, which is the same thing, and fix it, right? We've talked before that justice, God's justice is not you getting what you deserve and everybody else getting you what you deserve and you got to pay for that and pay for that. It's looking at the world and saying, okay, you broke a relationship. Not how do you pay for it and make up for it, but how do we make it right? And those aren't always the same thing. Often they're not the same thing. And we need to realize that. Our call to be people of God, to be members of a kingdom, to call forward the coming kingdom, to act righteously, to seek justice, is to look at the world and say, here's brokenness, how do we fix it? Because ultimately, that's what Jesus does. He's drawing all things together, fixing things, bringing it back to the way it ought to be. And we are called to partner with him in the world to do that very thing. Right? So it's Jesus' righteousness that justifies us and then compels us to do justice, which is different ways of saying the exact same thing. It's God fixing things through Jesus first and then through us as his hands and feet in the world. So seeking justice then is at the very heart, the core of what it means to be a Christian. Which for some of us, particularly those who are older than 30 or 40, uh, which I am now, um, this idea of justice, and particularly when you say something like the social gospel or social justice, makes some people a little uneasy, right? How many of you have heard that term, social justice or social gospel, and thought, I want nothing to do with that, right? And why is that? It's because 100 years ago, there was something called the social justice movement or the social gospel movement within particularly the mainline denominations. So we're thinking here of some Presbyterians, definitely Methodists, Episcopals, and the like, who took this message of making things right and went full bore in that direction. And so it became all about making the world right, and they forgot the justification part. They forgot, and what by that, let's, let's not say the justification part, the salvation part, which is a big deal. Things that are made right by, through the process of salvation. God saves and redeems the world, and that's how things get made right. And so the social gospel or the social justice movement very quickly and, and pointedly and, unfor- and unfortunately left behind concepts of sin and grace and forgiveness and justification, you know, salvation and went right into sort of just, we got to fix everything. Let's not worry about the gospel or Jesus or the cross or any of that. Let's just go fix things. And so what is sort of grown into uh, evangelicalism, which was fundamentalism before that, fundamentalism was the reaction to that, which said, no, we got to hold tight to our, our core doctrines. And they got very protective and internal about it. And then that has sort of morphed and combined with this thing called evangelicalism, which is gone the other way and said, it's all about salvation and you're, you're all sinful and you need Jesus and Jesus saved me. And, and when did you get saved? Because I got saved on October 4th, right? And, and it becomes all about that. And so we have sort of these two halves of the church and the gospel, which have now been torn apart unfortunately. And so a lot of us who are in that evangelical wing have an aversion to the term justice for good reason, because justice, unfortunately, has been co-opted and obviously and frequently means let's not think about brokenness and salvation. Let's just, let's just fix everything, right? And how we fix everything, uh, that's, a, that's another debate for another day. But the, the, other, the other side is true also true. Those that are in the social justice movement often look at the fundamental or evangelical church and they, you know, want nothing to do with it because it's all about you're evil, you're, you're terrible, you're sinful, and, and you need Jesus. But they don't care about fixing anything. Right? And so we have this divide in our church, which is unfortunate. What we need to do as Christians is recapture the concept of justice rightly understood and say, it's our job to fix things because Jesus is king. Because he has saved us, because he wants to save the world, he's in the process of saving the world, our job is to fix things. So when somebody stands up and says, I'm all for you know, environmental justice, my first reaction to that is, what in the world does that mean? Right? How are you using the term justice? Because in the way the world uses justice, justice, it's all about evening scales and people getting what they deserve. And how does that apply to environment? Well, there are some philosophies out there that and, and other alternative religions even that can make sense of that, but we can make really good sense of that. Like environmental justice, that's our, that's our bag, y'all. Like the, the Lord, create, God created the world as his temple for us to inhabit and to worship him in and to care for, 
right? Environmental justice, let's grab onto that one. This is our world to take care of because we're his image bearers. And so when we look at our world and we see things broken environmentally or racially or economically, when I'm talking about, you know, pay or whatever the issue is, if there's a problem, we ought to not just, you know, put our hands up and say, I want nothing to do with that, you liberal crazy justice people. We ought to say, you're absolutely right. There's a problem here. And it needs God's justice. And the problem with most justice movements is they seek justice without the power by which to find justice. They forget God. And so what we, we're in a place as a church where we look at our world who are clamoring about all these issues that are going on and they, they don't want to talk about God in the midst of it. So we just say, well, forget that. We're just going to go here and worship our God. When instead we need to say, yeah, you're right. There's a problem. And, and we know the answer, right? This is when you look forward to the kingdom of God. You say, this is the way it ought to be. And it's messed up and we got to fix it. And here's how we need to fix it. And it's at that point when Paul makes his fundamental argument, the fulcrum argument in the, in the letter to the Romans about justification, right? This is where it, it's crucial to understand what Paul says about the reality, the nature of reality and humanity. Paul, Paul speaks to the Romans and to the Jews, and he says in different ways, he says, you have to put aside your preference for the way you think things ought to be in order that you might create this community that God wants to bring about. And he's a lot harsher than that, actually, in the way that he talks about it. Um, to the Jews, that preference is Torah, their holy scripture. And he's saying to them, junk it, more or less, right? Set it to the side. He's made this argument in uh, made it in Colossians. He definitely makes it in Galatians. He makes it other places that what it means to be a people of Jesus is no longer to be bound by the laws of, of Torah, that those who are Gentile come in by faith, right? And then he also looks to Rome and its culture of elitism and says, no, that's, that ain't it either, right? So in, in those verses 18 and 32, which we looked at months ago, he essentially looks at the Romans and says, hey, your culture is trash, right? Good job conquering the known world, but you're all basically immoral. And no matter how good you think you are, you've missed the step and you've been led into all sorts of wrong areas and, and your culture is junk, right? And, and that's in that piece or in that section about the power of sin and death over the world. It is over the pagan culture, the Gentile culture, because they don't have God. And so despite all the goodness that they think they've brought about through conquering the known world, in the end, it's all junk. And then to the Jews, he turns and he doesn't just say, hey, we need to kind of like ease up on Torah. He says, you all are a complete failure. He goes through a litany in the second chapter of ways in which they failed to live up to that law. Adultery, lying, misdeeds. And he basically says, your, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. The mark of the covenant, the circumcision, the rite of circumcision might as well never have happened because you have failed so profoundly that you are an embarrassment to your God. Jesus more or less tells them the same thing, right? When Jesus is, is addressing them, and I'm thinking here obviously also when he comes to the uh, crest of the hill of Mount Olives and sees Jerusalem and he weeps over Jerusalem, and then he actually speaks to them later and says, you guys, you guys have, have failed completely. You don't understand what I'm saying. You don't understand your God. And to the Pharisees, he actually calls them sons of the devil, right? I mean, you want to talk about being offensive and cutting somebody down. Right? He says, you have failed. You fail. God has set a covenant up in front of you, which is the, the sort of the grid or the playground within which you're supposed to play. And you've gone off in all sorts of directions that you ought not go. He says, you're terrible. You failed. And he looks at them, he actually looks at them and says, you know, but, but you know what you're really good at? Killing prophets. You got that one down, right? I mean, he's deeply offensive. To, and Paul is deeply offensive both to Rome and to the Jews. But it's through that offense that he lay, clears the deck, right? And so he takes away any claim that the Gentile Christians would make to be elite, that we are now the inheritors of Israel. We are now the grand people. And he says, no, 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 no. Everything about you is complete garbage. Really? 
And he turns to the Jews who want to insist upon Torah and, and you know, strap the hands, you know, shackles on to the Gentiles to make them Jewish and say, what are you talking about? You can't do it. You don't even know, you don't even know of that of which you speak. It, it, it's not that the covenant failed, but you certainly failed. It's not possible. And so it's not possible for Roman culture nor the Torah actually to justify, to bring back together, to bring about God's kingdom. The things we've got going on in our culture, they're not good enough. They don't do it. And, and what does, however, is God's righteousness, Jesus's righteousness. And it is a picking the scab, punching the gut on the, behalf, on the part of Jesus and Paul and Romans to all of us, but particularly to the, that church in that time, that says, knock it off. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we are all on the out. And it is only because Jesus has been righteous on our behalf that he brings us back into relationship that we can then be called upon to act justly in our world. It's only because of Jesus. You got no skin in the game, y'all. That's what he's saying, right? It, it has nothing to do. You, Jew, are no different than you, Gentile. You've both failed in profound ways, and it's only Jesus that brings you together. And this is where the justification piece that Luther latched onto is so profound for Paul's larger argument that we lose sight of. It is the, the process of justification, the reality that it's only by Jesus that we are brought together. It is only through the power of Jesus that me and an African-American kid that's 20 years younger than me are going to hang out. We met each other in church and we've kept, we've kept communication in church. Have we ever really seen each other outside of church? Not really. I knew him 10 years ago because of church. And God has called us back together to do his work. Right? I know lots of people through church that I would never know otherwise. That is the point. It is the ethnic, racial, gender, societal, pick your anthropological category. It is that diversity that is unified in the power of Christ that is the manifestation of God's sovereignty. God is the God over you and me and you and you and everyone, and therefore we're all the same. And that's why he opens with an introduction all about kingship and God's kingship, Christ's kingship. And he ends about coming together as a family, the unity of the church. And in the middle is all this conversation about justification and the brokenness of the world and God fixing it. And now what do we do about Israel? Oh, by the way, they're not forgotten. God still loves them. He's going to bring them in the end is what Paul says. How? I don't know. Don't ask me today. We'll talk about it another day. And because of all that, here's how you ought to act. This, this is Romans. You have a king. And it is the work of that king that has brought you back into the relationship. So don't think you're better than anybody else. You're all the same. You're all loved deeply, but you are not worthy. That's the message of the gospel. No, you're not worthy, but you are loved. There are those that will want to tell you that, you know, God looks at you and says, yeah, you're worthy despite. That's not the truth, right? That's not the truth. I'm not, I'm not worthy but I'm loved anyway. That's the truth. We prayed in our prayer earlier. I think it was you, right? You prayed about God's unconditional love that is the power, that is the unifying force, that is that which motivates the coming of Christ, the sacrifice. God's love for his world, for us as individuals and as a people, not only of God, but all people, is why he would even care to come and be our king once again. He didn't have to do that. He could just say the heck with it. But he loves us. And so we are called to realize that regardless of how special we think we are or how, how well we've got it all together, how good our life looks from the outside, we still, without Jesus, are broken. To the extent we have it together, to the extent that we are good, it is only because God has been righteous to us and we have, at the most, simply responded to his righteousness and his justice. But because of that, because we are in that relationship, because Jesus is our king, because he now has a claim on our life and our work and our thoughts and our deeds, 
We are called to be agents of that justice in this world. It's now our job to recognize the tremendous gift we've been given and to go out into the street and see the person that doesn't look like us or act like us or the couple that walks down the street that's high off their mind, can't even stay on the sidewalk and not say, oh, poor souls. Wish they'd get their life together. But say, son and daughter of God, I am broken too. I have a good and gracious and loving God who I know. Come meet him. Come be part of the family. It is our job to fix that which is broken with the help and the power of the Spirit of God in accordance with the mandate given to us by our King. That is the gospel, that is Paul, that is Romans, that is across the entire scriptures, in fact. God is God. He's, he's the boss. I mean, it really, it gets no more difficult than that. God is the God. He made it all. He calls the shots. And, and we aren't, right? And he screwed it up, and we screw it up, and we do. We, in profound ways, we screw it up. Yet he loves us, and so he keeps picking us back up and putting us back on the horse. Paul will come along and knock you off once it gets too high. Remind you where you really sit and what your place is, which is a loved child of God called to humbly go forth into the world to proclaim the gospel of the King Jesus to the world so that we all might come together to worship, to live together, to revel in the glory of our God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus as king is good news because Jesus as king means things get fixed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my goodness, how thankful we are for the record and the witness of Paul across all of his writings. But today as we peek into Romans and begin to understand what he has to say, we thank you for the reminder on the one hand, how, much lo how loved we are how good you are, the fact that we are brought back into relationship with you and we get to revel in that reality and enjoy the benefits and the blessings that come along with that, but to also be reminded that we ought to be humble in the midst of that. For it is, it is due to no work of our own, simply your love and your righteousness towards us. So Lord, we ask that you would equip us with a vision and your eyes and your heart for this world that in looking forward to the coming day when your kingdom will be brought here, made a reality in its fullness and a new heaven and a new earth. As we look at that picture that's given to us in the scriptures, Lord, that we then turn to our world and find the ways in which it does not line up. And then without condemnation, without uh, condescension, we go to those places and to those people and say, we have a solution we are here to help. We are here to fix. We are here to make you whole once more to fix the problem because God loves you because Jesus is our King and he has told us to. So Lord, we ask that you make us your people, that we, you transform us into people of the gospel, that we reclaim and wear with pride the term evangelical as one who pronounces, proclaims, lives out the good news. We thank you for all you have done for us. And we ask all this in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Amen. So today is uh, communion. If you by chance had missed it on the way in, you're free to get up and go grab the elements are in the back. Um, if you manage to get them, now's the time to pull them out. I can't think of a more fitting way to end the discussion about Romans than celebrating the Eucharist as it is a reminder of Christ's sacrifice, which is that which he did to bring us back into relationship with him. I can't proclaim to know all the, the details of how that works. And Paul presents many theories of atonement in his discussion. And someday we'll talk about all that. 
But what we do know is that on the cross, God brings all things together through Christ, that he begins the project of making the world new again, that sin and death are defeated. And it is the moment of the cross where being crushed himself, Jesus overcomes that death, death and destruction. And so on the eve of that event, Jesus gathered his disciples and he would give them some final instructions, uh, tell them a little bit about what was coming, although they certainly did not know. But he grabbed a cup, which was part of what was the Seder meal for the Passover meal. And he lifted it and he said, this is my blood spilled for you. We, of course, now know what that means. They did not at the time. And then he reached towards the center of the table and he picked up what was something like matzah, an unleavened bread, and he cracked it and broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And we tell them to take and drink and, and it would be a reminder for them every time that they did it of that which he has done. And so for today, as we sit here, having now looked at the entire Old Testament, although brief or New Testament briefly, we can understand what it is that Jesus did. It wasn't just death. It was victory. It was Jesus becoming king in order to rule over the world, in order to bring it all back together, to fix it and to fix us. And so Christians throughout the centuries, 2,000 years now, have been gathering in communities such as this, celebrating this moment, remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, the power of God on the cross and the subsequent resurrection and the reality that we now live in on this side of the act that this symbolizes. And so as we come to this moment, we bow our heads now, we pray to God and say, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon these elements and those of us who are about to partake of them. Fill us with your grace and your mercy, your love. Humble us, give us your vision for this world. Make us your disciples. Transform us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. And so to you, I say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. Amen.